Pleasure to see everybody today. Again, we are going to be walking into week two of our series called Connected, and we're focusing uh, six weeks here on on studying what our life in the church kind of really looks like. Last week, we focused on mainly on on the importance of of being a part of the church, the the why and the how, and last week, we were really kind of focused on why, Uh, because many, 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 many people have asked the question, like, do I really need to belong to a church? Do I really need to plug into the church? And what we said coming out of last week was yes. Yes, yes, we do, because being a part of the church grants us access to all the privileges that Christ's death and his resurrection has been given to us. And being a part of the church is our identity as Christians. That is very much an identity thing, being a part of God's church as uh, as Christians. And so with any identity, right, we said that there's a responsibilities to those identities. In any identity we have, we have a responsibility to that identity. And our responsibility as a member, as a part of God's universal church, our responsibility is to stay connected, to abide, to be dependent on the Lord. That's our responsibility. And when we do that responsibility well, when we plug in and build that habit and rhythm of being in the Word, when we pray without ceasing in the Spirit, what begins to happen is all those things that we think as responsibilities, like attendance, service, giving, all of those things become privileges that we get to do because our heart is being transformed by the Father. God's Spirit begins to produce fruit in our lives that creates different actions, different beliefs, different attitudes in His heart. And in that heart, it pushes us towards doing things like good works and even church attendance, not because they're a task, but because They're a joy. They're a privilege that we get to be a part of. And so this week, we're going to jump into being connected in unity, being unified as a body, because unity is really important to the Lord. And here's the reality. We all want to live in peace and harmony with each other. Uh, There are a few crazy people that I know that like really like conflict. I don't think that's many of us that like to be in conflict. We like to have peace and harmony in your life. But like everything that is worthy and everything that is valuable Unity comes with a price. Unity comes with a price. If it were easy, every group of people, every government subcommittee, every entity, any organization, they would already have achieved it by now. But unity takes a lot of hard work. And that work always starts with the individual's hearts. It always starts with us. But sometimes we use the wrong tools to bring about unity. Sometimes we work the wrong things to find unity. And many of us would believe that if I could just have the absence of conflict in my life, (laughs) everything would be gravy at that point. But that's not true. The absence of conflict does not bring unity. In fact, Unity comes through the fruitful results of working through that conflict. Uh, There are two pillars, brilliant minds in American history, many. Uh, John Adams, our second president, and Thomas Jefferson, our third president. Anybody want to name the fourth? Yeah, I struggled too. I was just thinking backstage, like, who is the fourth president? I can work backwards, but I can't go forward from one, two, three, four. Uh, So John Adams and, and, and Thomas Jefferson, they fell, had a falling out. They had a falling out over politics, uh, over some personal issues. Both left feeling betrayed in their relationships. And this feud became kind of embittered to the point where they began to just, they didn't talk anymore. Their relationship ceased to be from that moment forward. 
And so much so that their friends were just, they're just distraught that here are these giants in the revolution and they can't even get along and they're not even working through their conflict. They're just going to be frosty towards each other for the rest of their lives. And so what happens in 1809 is one of the other signers of the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Benjamin Rush, he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees two men talking, writing letters to each other. There are two divided statesmen that begin to communicate to each other. He goes and tells Jefferson and Adams about this dream. They both respectfully listen to him, but then they do nothing about that dream. And then three years later, at Russia's urging, Thomas Jefferson sends a letter to John Adams, and Adams responded very guardedly to his letter, and one letter goes to the next letter, to the next letter, and then on July 15th of 1813, Adams wrote Jefferson this. He says, never mind it, my dear sir, if I wrote four letters to your one. Jefferson is a professional letter writer. You should read some of his letters. John Adams is not as eloquent in his, that's why he said, if I would do four to your one, it wouldn't do your one justice. So if, sir, if I wrote you four letters to your one, your one is worth more than my four. You and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. And so these bitter enemies, being prodded by a friend's dream, are brought back together after several years, and they begin just to write to each other. And they, they begin a relationship, again, that's built on friendship and reverence. And this is the crazy thing about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, if you don't know. They died on the exact same day. They died on the exact same day, three hours apart from each other, on July 4th, 1826, on the 50th anniversary of their signing of the Declaration of Independence. I, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from people like Jefferson and Adam. Maybe, in, in, yes, in unity, a lot of things that we can learn from Adams and Jefferson, but we have these unified patriots that took part in two presidential elections against each other, each one winning one, that kind of fell out of, of love for, for one another, but at the end of the day, they came back together because of what was most important to them in their lives. And what was most important to Adams and Jefferson was the love of their country. It was a cornerstone that brought unity to them both. Led it to many, many years of beautiful writing between these two men. And, and look, there's no doubt that today we could use a spirit of unity that we see here presence with Adams and Jefferson. Uh, we live in a day and age where the loudest voices are most often those who are in opposition to something or somebody. We certainly have moved apart as a culture, uh, philosophically, politically, and religiously. But listen, I, I think, look, I think our media paints up this division. But I think that if we would step out of our houses and have com like conversations with our neighbors and our coworkers, fellow friends, I, I think that we would find that we have a lot more in common amongst us than we have that differs amongst us. Uh, I just think that's a true reality for us. Uh, uh, there's a fascinating story that has always intrigued me, uh, that speaks towards this notion of unity, of, of finding commonalities, of having things in general uh, in, in common together, uh, that, that, it's a, it, that there are things that are bedrock in us that are just common to us. And so, look, I apologize if I've told this story before. I don't think that I have, but here's the reality. I'm probably going to tell lots of stories that I've probably told before, so just get used to it, okay? 
Uh, there's a, a Panamanian dictator named uh, Manuel Noriega. Anybody heard of Manuel Noriega before? Okay, nobody, be, anybody before 1980 that was born probably remembers Manuel Noriega. Uh, not a great guy, right? He is not a great man, but he becomes pen pals with a 10-year-old girl from Wisconsin named Sarah York. She saw him on TV and loved his hat, had this very military hat, and she wrote him a letter. Why? I don't know, but she, she did it. And so Noriega is a war criminal, all right? He is a, he's, a, he's an enabler of a drug trafficking ring that's wrecking havoc on his country and our country. He is not a very good person. But in the midst of this, he begins pen pals with a 10-year-old girl from Wisconsin named Sarah York. So much so that they just began to correspond back and forth to each other. Pleasantries. He gives her a hat. He sends a hat in the mail because she wanted one. And then he invites her to come to Panama. And her family is considering the offer. There's a lot of congressmen and senators that are in her area in Wisconsin that are saying, don't do it. Noriega just wants to use you as some sort of propaganda. But they decide to go. And when they're in Panama, they said they had a great time. And there's a story that, that Sarah York's mother speaks about that has always intrigued me in some weird way. I, I don't think it's weird. I think it's fascinating. So the story goes that Manuel Noriega and his, has got them at a beach house. His daughter is there in Sarah York, and they're both in the water, and they're swimming. And there's a wave that comes that knocks this 10-year-old girl over, Sarah York, and she is struggling in the surf. And her mom said, out of nowhere, dictator Manuel Noriega runs into the water, picks up her little girl, grabs her out of the water and brings her up on shore and drops her and then picks her up and puts a towel around her and just very lovingly and carefully escorts her over to her concerned mother. And, and York's mother said, in that moment, all this notorious dictator, all, with this notorious dictator, all that I could see was a daddy. Like he was a daddy. He treated my little girl with such great care that he was a daddy. That's all that I saw. Now, this doesn't justify Noriega. It doesn't justify what he has done. But sometimes in life, I wonder what it would look like if we spent more time considering what it is that unites us and speaking towards those realities than focusing all our attention on what divides us. Might we actually make more progress in appealing to our commonalities, those things that we have in common with each other, and working out of those lenses than working out of the lenses in which we see our differences. And when we look in the pages of Scripture, we see that this is something that the Lord has impressed for His people to do as well. The Lord wants His people to see what is true and what is center, central to His people. Because, look, you guys know this. As Christians, we have many, many different thoughts, many, 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 many different ideas and some philosophies. But at the end of the day, we all have one thing in common, our hope in Christ. Salvation through Christ and Christ alone. That's what we have in common. And so Paul beautifully writes in his epistle in Ephesians, in chapter 4, he writes towards this aspect of unity that I really would love for these words to sink into our hearts today. Uh, so let's read it together. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. 
says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In, in, in that first verse, Paul tells us he urges us to do something. Paul wants every person who has been justified by the Lord, who claims the Lord as their Savior, as their forgiver of their lives, to live in a manner that is worthy of the call of Christ. It's a very particular manner that he wants us to live. He begs us to live a life that is worthy to that call. And so, friends, do you understand what that call is? Do you understand what that call is? Because it is crucial to how we live. Our calling is nothing more than us believing that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is that we believe as we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, and in that we have been given salvation. It is to believe that our sins have been forgiven, and not only forgiven, but forgotten and not remembered anymore through the death of Christ. It is to believe that we are a new creation because we confess Christ, that the old nature has died and the new man has risen in us, and that new person comes alive because of Christ, and that person is a Christian. When we are called by God, it means that we are to live a life that is worthy of that calling. In other words, our conduct should be in such a manner that it brings glory to Christ in all that we do. And Paul, in this passage, gives us some very concrete examples of how we are about to, to do that, how we should go about doing, living a worthy life. In, in verse 2, Paul tells us to be humble, but not just humble. He says, in all humility. In some version, it says, completely humble. The Greeks, when they used the word humble, they would use it in a negative connotation. Paul is writing and using it in a very positive manner here. To, to be humble focuses on our thoughts of ourselves. It, it literally means to be lowly, have a lowliness in our minds. In other words, don't think too highly of yourself. Humility is, is it's not like thinking less of yourself, okay? That's not what God is calling us to do, to think less of ourselves. Rather, that we would see our lives as a gift from God first. That all the things that he's given to us, all the abilities that he give, has given to us, those are the things that we should seek first. And through life, look, we learn in experiences, we grow in maturation, and that means that people might praise us for what Christ is doing in our lives, but we have no need to talk ourselves up. We have no need to talk ourselves up. The Lord is doing those things within us. And then in this passage, Paul urges us to be gentle. Gentleness can also be translated into meekness. Now, most people think meek people are weak people, that they're wishy-washy in some ways. It's a weak thing to be weak, meek. But that, listen, that's not true. The idea behind gentleness is strength under control. The Greeks would use the word meek to describe horses that were trained. That's, have you seen a horse? That's a strong thing. 
and trained, that is what meekness looks like. Meekness is a condition of the mind and the heart which demonstrates gentleness. It's not because you're weak. It's actually because you're strong. It's a balance born through strength of character. I love what this amazing man, A.W. Tozer, he writes about meekness. This is what he says. He says, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and as helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than the angels. This is his motto. In myself, nothing. In God, everything. Being meek is not a bad thing. It is actually just an incredibly strong characteristic of somebody who's been transformed by the gospel. Next, Paul tells us to be patient people. Patient means to be, have a long fuse with other people. It means to like be long-suffering towards those that just aggravate us because the Lord is long-suffering with us and we aggravate the Lord. We are to bear with one another. That's what it says, bear with one another. It literally means to suffer with one another. Suffer. Paul is calling for you and I to put up with each other. Put up with each other. And isn't this true of life? That we just have to be constantly putting up with people in our life, like whether it's at work, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's at your school. For me, it's even at restaurants. Like, seriously, who orders chicken fingers at El Camino? That's just like, I'm bearing with you when you do that, okay? (laughs) It's kind of crazy. At least could you get kind of the quesadilla? I mean, that's just kind of a, a version of a cheese toasty. That's pretty, oh, I see Brandon Trout out there. I know, I know that he's, okay? Listen, and that, you know, cheese toasty, that gets into another camp of people that bother me, right? You grilled pe- cheese people out there. Like, I don't know who you are. It's a cheese toasty. But we are to bear with one another. We are to bear with one another. And when we do that, it's like saying this. It's like, I see the struggles in your life. I see them. They're there. But I choose not to focus on those. Instead, I will see what the Lord is doing in your heart. That changes the way we view other people. It changes the way we view people. And that can be a scary task. Let's not lie. That can be hard for us to do. We have many misconceptions about people. But the Lord is clear that that is something that we ought to do. And then finally, Paul concludes by telling us that whatever we do, whatever we do, we must do it with a spirit of love. Because love is the cornerstone for Paul. Love is the cornerstone for Paul in Colossians. He, he says that over all of these things, over all the virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Again, Paul reminds us of this aspect of unity, that love is bedrock in it. It's the foundation. Without love for one another, we will never achieve unity. And the love that Paul is talking about here is the, the word agape. It's an agape type of love. It's a community-based love, which is costly. It's the type of love that Christ has for you and I. It's a love that's willing to risk getting messy because you love the other person. It's a love that's willing to lay down your own life for another. And so with all of that in mind, Paul takes us to the next level. And that level is a call for unity. It's a call for a unity within the church. And in verse 3, he tells us to make every effort to be diligent 
to be committed to keeping the unity of the church through the Holy Spirit. And if we give up on that, if we give up on that, we have given up on the church. If we give up on pursuing unity through the Spirit, we have given up on the church. Because without unity, the church will never achieve the greatness that Christ has destined it for. That's how important it is. That is how important unity is to the Lord. And I think that this is something that's planted, this, this idea of unity is something that's planted inside of us. It's, it's, it's planted inside of God's creation. Uh, because anytime our people get in trouble or come under a track, attack or, or being affected by tragedy, people will rally around those things. We see horrific things like Las Vegas. And we see things like damage and destruction and death in the hurricanes, but we see people rally around each other because deep down inside of us, there is something that connects us to one another. And I believe that is a part of God's good and right design that is planted deep inside of our hearts. It may be broken and carried out inefficiently and ineffectively at times, but that unity and that call for unity is deep within us, and we see it in this culture all the time. In our text, God has much to say about how we are to do this, how we are to be unified, how we are to obtain it, how we are to keep it. And so what what we're going to walk through here for just a little bit, in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he really paints some really good fundamental elements, pillars, I would say, for us to have as bedrock in our lives uh, in searching for unity within our church. And it would be wise for all of us to, to walk Uh, through these today and and try to really understand these. So there are four of them, four pillars of unity for God's people. Uh, Number one is this. We must place the gospel message over any group's ministry. We must place the gospel message over any group's ministry. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul kind of writes this. He kind of, he does write this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so in Paul's plea for unity, he is addressing the sources of division and distances himself from what is going on. And he brings clarity into the problem. Apparently, in this time, in this church, there were Christians who were identifying themselves by more by the people who were baptizing them, uh, and they were having bragging rights in that, than the one who saved them in Christ. There would be people that would say, like, dude, you don't know me, because I was baptized by Paul. I'm so much better than you. 
or oh, oh, Paul, he doesn't, he can't stand a card until Apollos, Apollos is my man. And so there's, it wasn't about how many people was baptized, it was all about who baptized you. And, and, and these people created different groups or different types of ministry based upon human personalities and man-made religions. And even though Paul was linked into these types of groups, these different groups, Paul's like, yo, I'm not having any part of that. That's ridiculous. Paul addresses that by this proclamation. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not on my wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so in a very unique way, Paul is actually distancing himself from the act of baptizing his disciples because it's an issue of, of bragging rights. And so know this, that there is no, there's not one ministry or group that is better than the other. We all may belong to different groups or Sunday schools or, or different uh, uh, classes, but the gospel takes priority over any ministry. Nothing is more important than the gospel message. Nothing is more important than the hope of Christ. Not a better church, not a better man, not a more impactful ministry. Nothing should ever supersede the message and the hope that we have in Christ for our salvation. Because nothing is better than that message. Could I say nothing anymore? Because there's nothing that's better than the message of the gospel. There's nothing that's better than Christ. We should not elevate anything above it. The second pillar that Paul speaks about is that we must pursue the Spirit's wisdom over the strategy of the world. Pursue the Spirit's wisdom over the strategy of the world. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes this, And I was with you in weakness, and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of the God, of God. In, in ministry, Paul makes it clear that he does not rely on his own personality. Paul's not relying on Paul here. Not in his own power, not in his own influence, not in his own ability to make great speeches. Paul is saying, look, I, I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit for my power and my wisdom. And look, he is laying a foundation for when he won't be there anymore. Paul didn't want this church to rely upon him. He wanted them to rely upon God. And that's why he says, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It was the Holy Spirit that revealed the gospel to, Christ, or to Paul. And it was the Holy Spirit who led Paul's ministry. And the application for us today in this local context of our church is the same thing. That we must rely on the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit and reject the wisdom of this world, and even the religious world. In this day and age of church growth paradigms, we have so many different competing ideas of what works and what doesn't work. There are so many different eyes, ideas, but the bottom line is this. Nothing works unless it is given to us by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We should always ask this question through the Spirit. Like, Holy Spirit, I know what everybody else is doing, but Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Spirit, what is it that you have for me? We rely on the power of the Spirit and not the strategy of the world. The third thing is this. The third pillar of unity is that we must place our confidence in God's power instead of a group's performance. 
our confidence in God's power instead of a group's performance. And in the third chapter of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who planted nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul has already established that we are all in this together, but he reiterates the importance of unity in ministry. And in, 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 chapter, in verses 5 and 6, he's saying, what is all of this? Who, who is Apollos? Who, who is Paul? Only servants through whom the Lord caused growth to happen. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Even Paul considers himself a follower. He considers himself a follower, not a leader of the church. He may have been the first follower to come into the city and, and lead people to Christ, but nonetheless, he was a follower. He was a follower. If we focus on what's really important here, what's really important, the advancement of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom of God, we understand that it's not dependent upon our ability. God is the one who assigns the task of those who water, those who plants. He facilitates all the spiritual growth in it because you know what? We're just not that good. I, I don't know if that burst your bubble. We're just not that good. Who in here can change the human heart? I can't. Only Christ can. Only Christ can do that. Local churches need to replace to rely, shouldn't rely upon one ministry to reach their community or one cause to reach their community. And this might seem repetitive, uh, but that we have this faulty idea that if we do this math equation in our head, like a relevant message plus dynamic worship plus awesome student ministry plus children's ministry plus guest ministry plus great donuts plus a friendly environment equals spiritual growth. Well, it may equal church growth, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee spiritual growth. The congregation, us, we, God's people, need to trust in God's power for real spiritual growth. We have to create an environment of dependency on the Lord in our churches and in our hearts. That is where gospel-centered growth begins when we lean in dependency on the Lord. And the fourth pillar is that we must prize the work of God more than the words of man. We must prize the work of God more than the words of man. In, in 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. I love that. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. But in power. By this time in this church, these so-called church leaders were criticizing Paul and his approach to kingdom ministry. They came into the church to undermine Paul's authority and his example. These men relied on their own ability to craft really good speeches to convince and persuade other people to action. But Paul refused to trust in something that was so futile and powerless. Because here's the deal with Paul. Paul freely admitted to the fact that I'm not that smart, okay? All of these natural abilities that you think are just innate to me, they're not mine, okay? God gave them to me. I'm, I'm gonna admit to you on those things. It doesn't bother me when you tell me that I may be a fool. But Paul's 
ministry was chronicled by headache and suffering at, at his endurance as the result of an obedience that was given to him by his dependency on the Spirit of God. Paul knows that an obedient ministry speaks louder than any puffed up words or eloquent speeches. Because when it's all said and done, it's about our obedience to the Lord that is produced out of a heart that is depending on the Lord. That's all that matters. Even, even if it means enduring troubling times. Our quiet ministry for the sake of others and Christ far exceeds what prideful words could ever say. Bluntly, bluntly, you could say that a quiet, quiet and powerful ministry trumps all sp- sorts of eloquent speeches or natural abilities to give a good message. When you endure hardships for Jesus, for the sake of others, our actions, they always speak louder than our words. Why, why do you think people remember Mother Teresa so well? It was never about her words. It was always about her actions. And so these are the pillars that we have to build upon to bring unity into our church, not just here, but globally in the big C church as well. If we as believers could just break through on these crazy ideas that we have and get down to the things that actually matter, our salvation in Christ, if we can agree on that, if, if we have hope in Christ, in Christ alone, we can bear with one another through that. We can bear with one another through the cause, for the cause of Christ. Because at the end of the day, those of us who know Christ, those of us who profess Christ in their lives, we're family. We're part of God's family. And we look, we know that we have some awkward members of our family in this room. Just some awkward, everybody's got like that, I got an Uncle Tony in my family. Does anybody have an Uncle Tony in family? He's a weird dude, okay? We have some interesting people in our genes, but at the end of the day, we're family. We're family. And so we are to bear with one another as we unite around the hope of the gospel, salvation through Christ alone. And today, because we speak of unity, I think it would be fitting that we would come together around, together as a church around the table of communion as a family of God. Because communion reminds us of the death and the resurrection of Christ, that we have been reconciled to God through Christ, through his blood, and we have been adopted into his household that we are a part of God's family. And that is an identity that all of us who profess the name of Christ carry. We're a part of God's church. The bread represents the broken body of Christ that was hung on the cross. The blood is represented by the juice. The blood is what cleanses us and forgives us of our sins. So in a few moments, the band is going to come out. We're going to sing a couple songs. I would just ask for you to take some time here today and just let the Lord speak to your heart that you would confess where you fall short with the Lord, that you would make yourself right with the Lord before you come and celebrate what it is that we do today around the table of communion. And so pray that the Lord would break your heart, that he would reveal things to you that you are short, you're falling short of, even in the areas of unity, that you would allow God to search your heart and know your heart, and then you celebrate. We celebrate today. And for those of you in here who haven't made a profession 
for Christ, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, know this. We love that you're here. We love that you're here. But this is a time for the family of God, those who profess with their mouth, believe in their hearts, to come around the table and celebrate the goodness of God and what he's done in our lives. And so that is you. If that is you, then you just know you can stay there and reflect while we come around and celebrate this. Guys, we have lots of work to do to bring unity. But God has commanded in the scripture that we do it as we rest on the one thing that matters, salvation through Christ alone. And if we work out of that lens, if we work out of that lens, we can bear with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you today, and uh, Lord, I, I just admit, and, and I think we collectively admit, that we, we fall short uh, of looking at our brothers and sisters through the right lenses. We, we put so many other trinkets and toys in front of the fact that we have the hope in the gospel, that you have saved us through faith alone, by grace alone, Lord. And Lord, we just repent of that. We just ask that you would grow us in our desire to love one another, that you would humble us, that you would give us a meekness, that we would be gentle, that we would care for one another. God, that you would just increase in unity, uh, this church in unity, that you would increase your church in unity that those in the world might see and feel a, a, a unity that is uncommon to this world that drives them to sit in these seats and come to know you, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these in the name of Christ our Lord, who has done for us what we could not. Amen.